0: What's the next slide, Ernest? It is me, isn't it? <coughs> I didn't have a sheet of paper with it written on. Yes, it's me. Look at that, got my name up there and everything. <laughs> All right, I can relax. Hope you're relaxed and uh, enjoying enjoying your morning. Anybody see the sunrise this morning? Yeah, I know, it's 8.30, early morning rises, you know, you just, uh... no, okay. I was thinking, you know, we take note of who is here at 8.30. And uh, I just want to say, if at any time in the next 50 years you tell us that something is too early, an event we're doing at Lawson Road, we're just going to say, hey, we remember back in 2021 that you got up at 8.30 for worship. So uh, we appreciate you doing that. Uh, Just to build on what Curtis said about the success of our diaper giveaway yesterday, uh, I, I think we were planning, you know, we're trying to raise the 120 packages, and uh, Miranda, I think the number was close to 180, is that correct? Yeah. So uh, one reason we have lots of leftovers is because we got way more than we were expecting, so uh, that's uh, that's terrific, and uh, uh, I'm hopeful that it'll be something that we can do again, and uh, that we'll learn and find new ways to get word out about it, and uh, people will Sure, after a little while, start looking for it, and uh, we won't have any trouble getting rid of, uh, of those diapers. But I do know those who received them were very, very appreciative. I think the, uh, the first person that came just they caught a bus or something, they walked, walked to get here. Uh, I, I don't know how locally they lived, but uh, uh, that was, they were here right at 12 o'clock, so they were ready for their packages of diapers. So we are in the book the letter of 1 Peter today and uh, it, it's we're starting this new new letter a new book as we take a break from acts and as we go through uh, you know one of the things I'd encourage you to do is try and think about hey how does this match up with the life of Peter uh, so we're going to talk you know as we go through we're going to see quite a bit about uh Difficulties and Struggles and Hardship and Tension Between Church and State, First um, Peter and Revelation, are two books that deal with that topic uh, quite at length. Uh, but if you think how that relates to the experience of the Apostle Peter in the first 12 chapters of Acts, he was sort of constantly in tension with the uh, governing authorities in Jerusalem, uh, whether they be... Uh, mostly they were Jewish. uh, And here he's going to be talking more about Romans. Uh, It's about written in about the 60s. Peter probably died 64, 65, so this is probably somewhere close to the end of his life that he wrote this letter. Um, But so it's, let's say, 20 to 30 years after uh, those events in Acts. And as I mentioned last week, probably written from Rome. But as we uh, look at it here in verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, oh, I will say, I encourage you to have your Bibles with you. Uh, I'm going to stay just in 1 Peter, uh, so I haven't put it on the screen, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can follow along, you won't have to skip around too much. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter, an apostle, a witness of Jesus, uh, one of the twelve. And his writing, we're told, to, uh, to God's elect, to God's people. Okay? church, but uh, we see immediately the church isn't addressed to, uh, the letter isn't addressed to a particular church or to a particular person. It's addressed to what it says are exiles, and we're going to see this concept of exiles. Now, The in, in, in the Old Testament, an exile was someone who'd been sent to Babylon. Uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon as punishment for sin. But that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, he's talking about, uh, if you, I don't know, I preached on Ezekiel way back last year sometime. And in Ezekiel, you have this community of people living in Babylon. Ezekiel says, hey, put down roots. You know, buy land, marry, you know, get get comfortable there. You're going to be there a long time. Don't just sort of live in Babylon thinking, oh, maybe next week we'll be able to go back to Jerusalem. He says, no, like, you're there. Live your life. And and, and so an exile is somebody who is living away from home. That, that's the way that, it, it's not somebody who has been punished for sin, although that's how it functioned in the Old Testament, but someone living away from home. And so this Right at the very beginning, the first description, well, second description, God's elect, exiles. It's not that these are Jews that are scattered to other parts of the Roman Empire. What he is saying is that as Christians, we make poor patriots because we are always exiles living away from home. That we're always sojourners, pressing on to Canaan's land, okay? and and that's that's his beginning, that's his starting point of identity, is hey you guys are exiles, pressing on to a better land. Now he lists these these names, and uh, they probably if, if your sort of knowledge of. Turkish geography is uh, similar to mine, somewhere close to zero. Then those names don't mean a whole lot to you. Okay, you may recognise Galicia um, because you know there's a one of Paul's letters to the churches in Galicia. Uh, but uh, I'm going to put them up on a map. I have a brand new clicker here, and we'll see if the clicker clicks. There we go. Uh, so you can see here the. Uh, how it, it pretty much covers this is this is all all of modern day Turkey up here, and it pretty much covers the whole of uh, Turkey. Certainly northern Turkey. Um, the the coastal region down here is not so much, but uh, the sort of central and northern northern Turkey. And I put Jerusalem down there just to give you reference points. Uh, so these are. They were Roman provinces, but they are also regions, that, uh, just geographical or political regions over different points in time. Uh, now, so you can see how much ground it covers, but I want to draw your attention to uh, one in particular, and that is Cappadocia. And uh, it, it has a rich history of Christianity. If you go way back, it's where the Hittites, uh, one of the people, ancient people groups, in the Old Testament, where they kind of based themselves, uh, but in, in the from the time of Jesus or not you know, the first church from the first century onward, uh, the the region of Cappadocia has this rich Christian history. Um, they became Eastern Orthodox after the split with the Roman Church after um, Constantine. But anyway. Uh, it's a dry, mountainous region. Uh, but they, it's really remarkable for this reason. In the period around 700 to 1200, it's a 500-year period, uh, the Christian church in that area, a Christian country, um, was under pressure from the expanding Muslim Ottoman Empire. And so uh, they, they did this remarkable thing where they they started building their towns and cities and buildings underground in the rock. So it looks a little like a Petro, if you've seen those, those pictures of Petro in, in Jordan. And, uh, and so, uh, there, oh, too far. <coughs> and still too far. There we go. So you can see here are two different churches that are just uh, carved into the rock. And they don't look very spectacular. I mean, although it's a spectacular facade, you have no idea how much is behind it. They actually put whole cities, in in some instances, underground as a way of protecting themselves against their invaders and all sorts of Indiana Jones traps and rolling stones and spears coming from above through holes, things like that. Um, But uh, this is what it looks like on the outside. And then on the inside... um, it's got these magnificent frescoes and vaulted ceilings, and you would have no idea that that was actually a cave inside a, a mountain. Uh, so the, the Cappadocia, it's a big tourist uh, region these days, uh, but has this remarkable Christian history. Um, so that was, as I say, it was about uh, 700, so it's the year 700, that's the earliest, so it's you know, at least 600 years after Peter's letter it just gives us a little idea of how these things develop all right peter is there in the first century in the year 60 writing a letter to a bunch of churches in a dry rocky part of turkey you know with people struggling for their faith and 600 years later they're building underground church buildings with great arts and everything and uh, just It's the dominant religion in in the region. So uh, we see the growth of of the the teaching of Jesus extending throughout uh, all these places. And uh, that may be something that you'd like to look into further on your own. I I certainly enjoyed when I came across that. All right. Um, I'm going to spend most of our time today in verses 3 through 9. And before we... We look at it. I just want you to know this about the text. Try and imagine if you can. Verses 3 through 12 as one sentence. That was how Peter wrote it. Okay, Larry, you didn't read it that way though. Um, that would have required a big, deep breath at the very beginning and probably getting faster and faster as you got towards the end. Um, it's like and, and Paul does this a couple of times. Uh, have these really long sentences. Usually, what happens in these sentences is they get started, and as they get going, they start getting. I think they start getting excited, and and they start to, it's going like, oh, and that reminds me of this, and that reminds me of this, and, and you know, and then they just keep building, and they're like, oh, and I was saying this, and then oh, let me you know add to it, and and they just kind of get on this roll because they're they're so excited to be sharing uh, their, their thoughts with their audience. And so I think that's a really good image to keep in mind as you go through here, because it would be easy to get bogged down in some of the details. Uh, but the the Peter, as he's writing it, he, and in all likelihood, given the way books were written back then, he's dictating it to someone. So really it's the scribe who was writing this down that you need to be most concerned about. But Peter, as he's dictating it, is you know, on a roll and and thrilled to be sharing with these people. So although the churches are facing hardships and he's writing to encourage them, uh, he's excited about the process. Let's, uh, and so I'm going to start just in in verse 3. Well, let me point out in verse, um, where is it, in verse 6, he says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, and he's given a lot of reasons for rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I'm going to see this idea of all kinds of trials and grief it's something that pops up again throughout the book. Peter is writing to churches that are having a hard time. We're going to talk more about it next week. But I want you to have a, a realistic picture of what that means. What's a hard time? mean for these early Christians. Uh, I I think oftentimes our imaginations sort of picture uh, communities, Christian communities being burned at the stake or thrown to the lions, Uh, or maybe Roman soldiers going door to door, dragging Christians out, and I kind of like what the way Paul is described as doing uh, back in in Acts. But it's not really like that. Uh, In fact... There's no real records anywhere in history that show a empire-wide anti-Christian persecution, you know, by the state. Um, and so, even Nero's persecution was pretty much particular to Rome. Uh, it didn't extend out much beyond there. You know, he accused the Christians of burning Rome, but not of burning Corinth or Ephesus. And so, uh, it, most of the persecution was there in Rome. Now, that's not to say that Roman officials in different parts of the empire didn't give Christians a hard time. In fact, they, they, there were occasions when they executed Christians. You know, we, we have records of them their being martyred and being ex, you know, executed uh, for their faith, you know, for no real reason. But that wasn't so much hey, a Roman governor says, hey, let me go find every Christian out there and, and exterminate them. Rather, it was if somebody had a problem with, with another, they could accuse them of being a Christian. And, and when that accusation was brought to the governor then, or, or the authorities, then they would take action against them. But it wasn't, as I say, going door to door looking for people. So what was this hardship that they're experiencing? It's more like the Christians who used to participate in um, activities with their friends. Okay? Used to go to particular events. Used to go to the temple. They were on the fundraising committee for the new temple of whatever the local deity was. They were involved in a trade guild. Uh, kind of like ancient trade unions, but focused around a, a pagan god. And so they were involved in these different organizations. And once they became Christian, because the pagan god was at the center of that, they would step back from those events and from going to those places. And as they withdrew then from this Roman civilized society, Roman civilized society started saying, hey, who are you? You're not the person we used to think you are. In fact," Your behavior by withdrawing kind of says you're not loyal to our society. You're not loyal to our God, the God that gives us prosperity. And so they started being suspicious of the Christians. And sometimes it was more than suspicion. But uh, it it was opposition to the Christians and hostility. And so there was distance that they placed. And Christians were isolated and uh, scorned, mocked. For for their faith. For instance, if you come over to chapter 4, we have this description in verse uh, 3. And um, starting in verse 3, for you have spent, he's writing to the church, he says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans chose to do, which lets us know he's mostly writing to Gentiles. Here's the list living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry they, so so that's the problem, That's, that's kind of the way pagans conduct themselves, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So I'm not at all suggesting that, oh, all they do is heap abuse, they don't feed you to the lions. Like, this is not a sticks and stones kind of thing. That abuse... Uh, is painful, particularly if it's constant, if there's no real escape from it. Um, And and so they were having a hard time. And and this is, since this letter is written to all the churches in the region, it wasn't just one locality. This, you know, it wasn't one governor in one place, because this is going to different provinces. This was like a regional Each of these are regions, so it's like super regional uh, way that the church was interacting with society. So, what would you say to someone who is living within an unfriendly community or workplace, and it's unfriendly because of their faith? What would you say to that person? Maybe something like, hey, get out of there. Change jobs. Move somewhere. But what if they couldn't? What if relocation wasn't an option? Now what do you say to that person that's having a hard time in their neighborhood or their workplace or wherever it is that they go because of their faith? Because I think that's a good starting point for us to think, how would we respond without looking ahead to what Peter has to say? how would we respond and help that particular individual? It'd be really good if what you're thinking is exactly what Peter says, wouldn't it? Um, and, and, uh, but we'll, we'll see how we go with that. Peter's approach is to remind these Christians why they're Christians. Right? But not just why they initially decided to become a Jesus follower. He reminds them of how God sees them. So I think for all of us, if we say, why am I a Jesus follower? It's because something happened. There was a particular thought, a particular moment that we said, yep, I need to make this decision. He's not going back and saying, tell me about that moment. Was it an overwhelming sense of guilt and a need for forgiveness? Was it trying to impress a boyfriend or girlfriend? Was it, you know, the parents? It was just a natural sort of stage of of growth and development. Um, What was going through your mind at the time? Rather, he says, remember how God sees you. Because the big issue that they're facing is how their community sees them, right? And so... He says, God sees you differently. Right back in verse 2, he says, Hey, you Christians, and, and speaking to us as well, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. I'm not going to spend the rest of the sermon breaking that down for you. But what we see there is that Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in bringing us to salvation. All have a role in saving us. And yes, bring us to a point where we're obedient to Jesus and where we're sprinkled with His blood. That connection with Jesus through His blood is, of course, important. To that process and I think it's this example of the three persons of the Godhead working together is one that uh, should be encouraging for us to realize that all that effort is going into God building relationship with us and so then Peter continues and he praises God or gives thanks the word could be either there in verse 3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, in his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That first description there of who we are, how God sees us, in in verse 2, is really just an introduction. It's a general statement of greeting. Now we're getting into Peter's discussion, his argument. This is what I'm praying. This is what I want for you. And he says, I'm thanking God. But he doesn't say, as we might expect, I'm thanking God that I used to be a terrible person who had done so much wrong, but God in his goodness sent his son to die a terrible death on the cross so that I could be forgiven, so that I could now have access. That that, that may all be true, but it's a narrative that's built largely around guilt. Where Peter begins is with a narrative that is built around gifts. He says, what I want to remind you of, Christians, is the gifts that God has given you. I think there's five in these verses. Maybe you can see them there uh, or, or, or not. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I see. The, the first one is that in his great mercy. Don't we need God's mercy? And, and that's the starting point. Okay, that's the first gift God gives us. Before he can give us anything else, he has to begin with mercy. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth. And this new birth is really the central thought of this whole passage, that that he's given us a new opportunity, a new beginning, a new life, a new birth. And and we see here this Peter, even though it's written in the 60s, he is still tying it back to like John, uh, John 3, where Jesus has told Nicodemus, That he needs to be born again. And that idea of new birth that originates there. And and so we see how these ideas, these concepts, these images captured the imagination of the early church. And Peter is able to reference it. He doesn't need to explain it. He says to the church, you have a new birth. Into a living hope. That's the third third promise, third gift that we have there. A living hope. Not just a hope for when we die, but a living hope. A hope, because we're going to see it's grounded in Jesus' resurrection. and, And Jesus' resurrection is about life and about living. And so that hope is one that's living, not a dead prophet. But it's also one that we don't have to just wait until we die, that we experience the hope in the present. So the the fourth gift is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the fifth, in verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I want to just explain this concept of inheritance. I think theirs is a a little different than ours. Our inheritance is something that you get when you die. Not when you die. When somebody else dies. Um, and, And so you kind of have to wait. And it's all about what happens at the death. The I've been trying to think of different ways to explain it. The first one, I think, is the prodigal son. That his step of saying, hey, all this stuff belongs to me. Right, Dad? I know that someday half of it's going to be mine. Well, I would like to get it now. Okay? There was a sense of ownership. And so even the, the son who stayed and worked for his father, recognized that he was building his inheritance. There was no question of, of, oh, is dad going to donate it to the local synagogue? Right? It was gonna be his. And so, as he worked and invested, he was working and investing in what really belonged to him. I, I, I got two other little examples here. One is that um, a, a, a person I knew a long time ago, an elderly couple, they came and stayed uh, my family went on a vacation, and I had to stay for school, and he came and did some preaching at our church. So I got to know them, and, and uh, they apparently were elderly enough that they were thinking about what came next. And, uh, and so they, they told me the story of how on their walls they had quite a lot of pictures back at their house. Well, their kids, they had encouraged their kids to go around and write their names on the back of the pictures for whichever one they wanted. And so their inheritance was already claimed. That all you had to do on the day they passed away was flip the pictures over and give it to whoever's name was on there. Or um, if there was no name, you could just sell it or get rid of it however you wanted. It belonged to that person now. There was a certainty about it. And uh, then then the the last example, maybe not everyone relates to this, but. I buy a lot of books on Amazon and I'm increasingly buying more e books. I hate reading e books, um, but they're cheaper. Sometimes they're free. So, you know, I go with that. Um, but oftentimes when you buy the book, or if you buy a, a paper book or pre order you know, a book, then they'll send you an e book that you can have a or a chapter or two that you can read until the paper book comes to you. Okay? So you, you purchase the book, it's in the mail to you, but you've got a couple of chapters that they send in an email that you can read while you're waiting for that physical copy to arrive. It belongs to you. It's a guarantee that what's coming is yours, and it's, it, it's, it's going to be yours. And you get to enjoy it in the meantime. And so when we talk about inheritance here, Uh, kept in, it says this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. But it's not there, this ancient concept of inheritance isn't just, oh, let's wait until we have a formal reading of the will and then see what we get. Okay. The idea of inheritance is that there's these promises made, there's this ownership that we get to experience in the present. But just like those chapters that come through the email, there's this promise of the full inheritance, the full book, the full ownership is going to be experienced somewhere in the future. But this is who we are to God. That when Peter says, I want to encourage you, and I'm going to start with remembering who you are to God, God gave you five gifts. Like, I'm just going to come at you off the top rope, five gifts, remember who you are you are. Not because of our excellent obedience, but because we're committed to following Him. And because this is all one exuberant sentence, it can sometimes be a little tricky to read. Okay? You kind of have to break it down and diagram it. Well, thankfully, I found a, a person who uh, diagrammed it and Gave us a summary of it. So, uh, uh, yeah, working on this. Oh, I've missed some slides here. Not that one. Oh, here we are. Hope that's not too small for you to read. So, in verses 3 through 5, which we've just, I've just taken more time than I will on the others to, to describe, is we have these reasons for praise or thanksgiving. And I think that's a great reminder to us that when we begin thinking about our relationship with God, beginning with the gifts that God has given us is such a healthy place. We can get to our guilt. We can get to our forgiveness. We can get to Jesus' sacrifice. We can get to the struggles that we have in life. We can get to all of that. But let's start by reminding each other of the gifts we have in God. I don't think if it wasn't for First Peter and these verses here that I would be ever come up with that list on my own. But First Peter you know, gives us these in a really neat way that I think are a good way for us to remember. And other passages of Scripture will help us to expand that. Because sometimes we may make our, our faith too small when we focus on forgiveness and omit this list of gifts that come with it. And so then in verses 6 through 7, we again see this sort of structure. He begins with this this first point uh, that there are reasons for joy that surpass grief. Now, This can be difficult for us because it's kind of like saying, oh, I'm sorry that you're going through a terrible time, a terrible hardship, you've had a terrible loss. But hey, other people have it worse. Hey, God still loves you. Hey, like, those things don't really help, right? Because they kind of diminish the pain and the struggle that we're experiencing. And and so I don't want to give the impression that that's what Peter's doing here. What Peter is saying is that there are two truths that can coexist. We can have a truth that God has given us tremendous gifts. We can also have a truth that life is hard, that grief is acceptable and real, and that the struggles are part of life. And these two things can exist together. What Peter is saying is don't. Get to a point in your life where you think that the struggles are all there is to life. I'm not telling... Because he says, I know you have grief. I know you have all sorts of trials. I'm not denying that. But I want you to also remember keep it in your back pocket, pull it out when you need it to, break glass in case of emergency. God has given you these wonderful gifts. And when you focus here you will have indescribable, glorious joy. And that may not be where you are right now, but it's waiting for you when you're ready. And it's still true, regardless of what you're experiencing. And then third, as we keep coming down here to the Last section. Peter reminds them of the personal relationship they have with Jesus. In verse 7 he says, Though you have not seen him. Peter had seen him, but they haven't. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now. Now this Peter could relate to because he doesn't see Jesus now either. You believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. So, he says, you love Jesus. This isn't like, you don't like Jesus. You don't just believe in him as an academic theoretical model of how the universe is constructed. You love Jesus. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Or sometimes we need to question ourselves and say, do I love Jesus. Why do I go to church? Is it because, why do I go to to Sunday morning worship? Is it because I want to see people? Is it because I have a habit? Is it because I feel guilty if I don't? Is it because I love Jesus? Because he first loved us. He says, even though you don't see him, you love That's a challenge, isn't it? How did you manage that during the pandemic with all the people you didn't see? Was it hard to keep loving them? Hard to remember them? Peter is acknowledging that. Sometimes it's hard to love Jesus because we don't see him. But he says, You do. And when we can focus on that, we believe in him, then that's where we get that glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so I want to just finish here with verse 9. You're receiving the end of your faith, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul, or your, your salvation, the salvation of you as a person. The New Testament writers here consistently describe salvation both as something we experience now as well as in the future. The kingdom of God is something that we experience and we participate and we live in now as well as we look forward to in the future. And so throughout this passage, Peter is saying, I know you're going through hardship, but remember what's ahead. And when you remember what's ahead, allow that to inform the way that you live now. It's not just hang on for dear life and wait until you get to the other side of death and everything's going to be okay he's saying no because you know what's out there then the way you live now the way you experience the way you react to life's events is different in the present because of the relationship you have with jesus because of who god sees you as because of the gifts god has given you because of your love for jesus then you are receiving Even now, the end result of your faith, which is your salvation. So, when life isn't going the way that you want it to, when you don't have the freedoms that you think you should, when people aren't as friendly as you would like them to be, when you need to stay inside your house, when you can't attend a worship service uh, in person, when you can't sing as you would like to, when you can't hug people, when you can't wear a mask, when life just seems unbearable, when you're isolated, remember Whose you are. Remember the gifts that God has given you. Remember your place in the universe is not at the edge of it, but is at the center of it. That the triune God as a a whole worked to make your salvation and your relationship with Him possible. Give thanks to God for His indescribable gifts. Great mercy. New birth. A living hope resurrection of Jesus, and an eternal inheritance. Because our understanding, of the, the more real those gifts become for us, the more our future will determine how we live in the present. If we can only remember whose we are.